turn to Genesis chapter 43. That's the next chapter in our saga, so if you find that place, and then there is an outline or a handout if you would like to have that. It'll pretty much be an exact replica of what you see on the screen here, but uh, anyway, sometimes it helps folks to have some notes as to follow along, and sometimes it also helps you to have something you can take home and do a little bit more with. I have a gentleman in Pennsylvania that I send it to every week, and uh, he says it helps him, so I'm sure there are some people where it's, a, it's an aid. So we're going to read God's Word. I, I always think that's the right way to do things if there's, if there's, and there's time, plenty of time to do this here with this chapter, although it's a power pack, just like the other ones in the story have been, but it's not excessively long. So start with me at verse 1 and follow along while I read. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we have told him was an answer. What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to his, Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise, and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. I don't usually like to stop what I'm reading, but I want to call your attention to that because, you know, we have talked about the fact that we see many parallels to Joseph in the life of Christ. But Judah, as you know, is the line from which Messiah comes. So Judah starts off poorly in our story, but as things go along, Judah begins to change in his character. And he will be making shortly, not in this chapter, but in the one that we see next, one of the most eloquent confessions anywhere in the Bible. And that'll be a thrill to look at that. But you have this translation. Look at how that's translated there. I will be a pledge of his safety. And you will find other versions. The King James, for example, does this. You will find other versions translate this surety. And so if you think about that, that's a theological doctrine. Jesus Christ is our surety. And even as Judah said, he would be surety. He would be a pledge of safety. And so we think of the Lord Jesus when we read that, and I don't have time to talk about Judah so much for that today, but it's worth noticing that right here in the text. Then he continues, from my hand you shall require him. So this is what the surety involves. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned to the mouth in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. 
may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. And they went up to the steward, with, to the steward of, the, of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door. It's a little detail there, at the door of the house. And said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Verse 23, he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Notice that's a, a pretty non-committal statement. He just assures them that he did get it. doesn't say anything more. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house, not the door anymore, and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he alive, still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? You notice he doesn't wait for an answer. God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, controlling himself, and said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So we'll end our reading there, and let's just look to the Lord. Father, we are thankful beyond words. Thank you for the gift of life today. Thank you even for just this little phrase that reminds us of Jesus, who is our surety. That we have no fear of penalty or wrath, because Jesus has been the pledge Thank you, his precious blood has washed away all of our sins if we know him today as personal Savior. <clears throat> and I pray, Father, that you will sanctify this day. We know you already have, and you have told us to do so, which is why we're here. We desire to 
fully enter into the best into the best possible way the worship that you have brought us here to render to you today and we ask that you would just give us strength alertness give us the ability to participate to the fullest extent so that we might praise and worship and honor you we pray for the word of the lord that will be broken this hour and in the next we pray that the word of the lord may be glorified and have free course and i pray lord that the the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, for I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I have commented to you before that the writer of the book of Genesis, whom we believe to be Moses, but this is masterful storytelling. And from our perspective, as the readers of the story, the suspense builds because we're wondering now, okay, the brothers have come one time, he keeps Simeon, they go back home, what's going to happen? Are they going to show back up again? Are they going to bring Benjamin? Is there going to be a reunion? Is there going to be reconciliation? So from our perspectives, it's, it's something that we enter to in, from the standpoint of great interest and suspense. But I want to tell you this morning, it was not that way when you think about what was next. This second encounter with Joseph, it was not that way for Jacob, and it was not that way, especially for the brothers. Probably the best word I know to describe what I think all of those other players were facing and feeling is dread. They dreaded this, and the brothers in particular, because now what has happened is this. Notice how the chapter begins with a reference to the famine. It was severe in the land. So in God's providence, the famine is forcing another meeting, right? Do you see that, what's going on here? From God's perspective, he's turning the screws tighter and tighter on these brothers because he's got to bring them to the place where they're, they make this thing right. And that's essential, of course, to what's going to take place. And so it's funny that Reuben actually said something back in chapter 42. I didn't really say much at the time, but here it is, and it, it focuses well on where we are now. If you turn a page back, if you need to, to get to it, and just look at verse 22. See, when, when they realized that something was going on, and the dread began to mount in their hearts over the guilt that they had and what they had done to Joseph, even though Joseph had not revealed himself yet, Reuben says this, Did not I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Look at this next phrase. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So this is what's going on. God, who is controlling all of these events, and God, who is in this famine, is bringing these brothers to a day of reckoning. So you can see why they would dread having to face Joseph again, even though they don't realize that that's who it is. They, they have this dread. So... Chapter 43 is very much akin to chapter 42 in the sense that you still have the three key players in the story. You have Jacob, and the chapter begins with a reference to Jacob, a little of vignette about Jacob and his dealings with his sons over this matter, same way chapter 42 did. And so it, jo Jacob is there, and then, of course, you have central to the story are the brothers, and then the person without whom there really wouldn't be a story, and that's Joseph. So there are things you can take away from all of these, and what I would like to do is talk to you a little bit about this. You know, when I read this chapter, 
And as I read this chapter, I mean, I've been through this before, and this to me is one of the great treasures of, of God's Word. And you don't have to be a preacher to experience this, but you know, it's forever new. I mean, God is always speaking to us in new ways and in fresh ways. And usually when I'm doing something like this, I, I may consult my materials from before, but I don't always follow them. I mean, the research is still there, so I profit from that, but I'm looking to God for what is it that God wants me to do now. And as I'm looking at this, I'm saying to myself, you know, there is peace. There's a picture of calm in this chapter. And I couldn't help but think about that story in the Gospels. I just love the Gospels. They're my favorite place in all the Bible. And if I have to find a second runner-up to that, it would be these great stories of the Old Testament. I just love the Bible stories. And I think about that story where the disciples were out on the the Lake of Galilee, and that wind, that tempest comes up, and Jesus is in the stern, and he's fallen asleep. The Bible tells us that his head is on a pillow. And they get, they wake him up, and they say, Master, I love the way the King James has this, carest thou not that we perish? And of course, we have a song that takes its title from that very phrase in the Bible. And it says, he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and then the Bible says, and there was a great calm. Now, have you ever been out on big water before where it's just absolutely calm? See, I grew up along the coast, and so we did a lot with boating and all of that type of thing, and most of the time it's not that way. I remember one fishing trip that my brother and I let a guy talk us into, and we had about a 19-foot boat, and he said, well, let's go to the 4KIC buoy and we'll fish out there. And we knew there, were, there, we knew there was good fishing out there, but, you know, a 19-foot boat three miles offshore, uh, just a little pensive about that. And you get out there and, you know, <laughs> you start losing sight of the land. Can't see that anymore. That up ratchets it up just a little bit more. It's kind of like, you know, you get on an airplane and as long as he's taxiing around and going out to the runway, you know, you don't worry too much, but buddy, I'm telling you what, he gets to the end of that runway and spools those engines up, and he's got his foot on the brake, and all of a sudden he's cleared for takeoff, and that thing starts swooping down that runway. Oh, man, the cat's in the kettle at the Peking moon, then, you know, it's, you're going to have to trust God, right? You're going to have to trust God that this thing that weighs tons and tons can get off the ground safely with you in it. Well, that's the way it is here, and I want to tell you, there is a picture of perfect calm. It was a great calm. There's a picture of that in this chapter, and it's Joseph. And so that's what I want to reach out to you about today, because the brothers and Jacob are anything but. I think they're a little bit more like we are most of the time, but the thing that I really, the thing that I really want to get across to you today is, you know, God has given to us the, the ability, the gift, the privilege, call it whatever you want, but God has given us the ability to be composed and to be calm. Even when things around us are totally out of control, even when we don't understand what's going on, God has given us that ability. I mean, this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, what's the next one? Peace. What does Isaiah tell us? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee. But how many days are we there? 
lots of times we let things disturb that. So that's what we're going to get into here. I want to see how it is that Joseph is this picture of perfect calm, why it is that Jacob and the brothers are not, and what we can learn from that. So let's plunge into this. So the first thing that we see is, I've selected the word distraught. We see this picture of Jacob. And I think that when you look at this, the word dread is a, is a pretty good word, really, although I've, I've chosen the word distraught here. I mean, here's what's going on with Jacob. He is also under the pressure of this famine. This famine is also being used by God, and he's the head of this family, and he's watching these grain stores that they have brought back from the first trip down into Egypt, and you know, you kind of get the impression that they were pretty much exhausted. He's, he's putting off this decision. He really doesn't want to make this decision. Why, doesn't he, why does he not want to make the decision? He doesn't want to make the decision because he knows he's going to have to deal with the issue of Benjamin. He knows full well from when they came back the first time exactly what the governor in the land of Egypt had said to the brothers. Don't come back without your brother. He wouldn't let him go the first time because he had dread of that. He doesn't want to let him go now, and so what's he done? He's put this decision off. And I'm sure we've all been there, right? We've all been in life when we've had a, an important decision to make, but we dread that. And, 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 and we, sometimes we have a way, instead of being decisive, now there's a difference between being decisive and running ahead of God. So I'm not, I understand that. But sometimes we do ourselves harm because we just won't come to grips with something, and that's the problem with Joseph. There's no way to, or with Jacob, there's no way to avoid this. Look at what Judah says to him in verse 10. When I, when I say you get the impression that the cupboard was bare, he says here, in verse number 10 of chapter 43, if we had not delayed, so I know I'm telling you the truth about this. He had delayed. He had put this off. And Judah now intercedes with him and says, if we hadn't done this, we'd have come there and gone there and come back twice. Folks, it's not beyond the realm of, of solid reason, I think, to come to the conclusion that those brothers, when they came back after the first trip, were fully expectant that they probably were going to be going back to rescue Simeon. But Jacob won't permit that. And so they sit there and they eat that grain and they eat that grain until it gets lower and lower and lower. And now we're almost at the point of crisis. How long do you think this went on? I don't know, but look over in chapter 45. There's a, a really interesting little note here. When they do arrive the second time, and they're talking to Joseph, and this is the third encounter actually, but it's the second trip. I'll, you can, I'll figure that math out for you next time. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler, let's see, did I get the right verse? 45, 6, I'm sorry, not 26. I'm reading. Yeah, so he says to them, let's look at this. For the famine has been in the land these two years. So when they're there, the second time, it's already the second year of the famine. So how many months went by? I mean, I suppose you could reason that when they came the first time, it was the first year of famine. Now it's the second year of famine, so months, maybe up to a full year. I don't know. I don't know how long they could have made what they had last, but I know he delayed. I know he didn't want to make this decision. 
And he doesn't make this decision, as I point out to you here, at Simeon's expense. Just don't forget, Simeon's over there on ice. You know, he's on like, like Colonel Clegg said on Hogan's Heroes, he's in the cooler. You remember that? I'm just looking to see who remembers it. You know, it, it tells me something. And so it's at his expense, but it isn't just at Simeon's expense. It's really placing his own family in jeopardy. Look at this statement in verse number 8. Again, Judah says to his father, send the boy with me. It's funny that you would say that for somebody in his 30s. But, and, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So it's with dread that, that Jacob has been facing this decision. And when he's confronted by Judah, what does he do? Instead of admitting that the problem's with him, which is a lot of times what we do, he covers and tries to shift the blame to the brothers. And he hides this indecision behind frustration. And he says to him, why'd you even tell the guy you had a brother? Which is un totally unreasonable. They, I mean, they had been accused of being spies, remember? And it's true that they sort of rattled off more information than maybe they had to, but they kind of give us more insight into precisely what went on because we're not privy to the whole interview. I mean, we have the things that God has given us. This provides a little more insight because the reply is this, and notice this is not just Judah. They're all speaking with one voice here for what that's worth from them. But I think they're being truthful here. Verse 7, they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? That's completely reasonable. Joseph or Jacob is the one who's being unreasonable, and he's hiding and trying to shift the blame for his unwillingness to confront this decision and make it onto his sons. But notice something. Once he makes that decision, this, this, to, me is, this to me is really neat, because, I mean, I have preached through the lives of all of these patriarchs, and even though what we're seeing in last chapter and in the chapter to date, I made the comment to you, I think, last week, you're not seeing here Jacob at his best. I mean, yes, we know that Jacob was named the supplanter. We know that he deceived and all those types of things. But Jacob wasn't any Mickey Mouse operator. Jacob was a man of talent. Jacob was a man of insight. And, you know, it's a tremendous study, the life of Jacob. So, I mean, he's just, his problem is this. He's, he's become so self-absorbed and... Uh, Maybe let's look at something here. I have so many notes scribbled in my margin that are ones that I wrote after the fact that I, <laughs> that I, I never, I don't, I, folks, I have never had a problem with not, not having enough to say. I, I can always fill the time. But anyway, look back to 42 and 36. I want you to notice a word. See if you can figure out the word that's in common in each of these verses I show you. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Let's look, turn over now to chapter 43. Look at verse 6. So you can find the word. Chapter 43, verse 6. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? And then look down in verse 14. May God Almighty grant you uh, mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Did you find the word? Two letters. Apple likes this word. 
me. Me. Why did you treat me so badly? And this is self-absorption. This is self-focus. This is self-pity. He's caught up in this. But once he makes the decision, this is what I have to do, it's like the old Joseph. Last time I mentioned this, I uh, had Eric come up to me and say, I raised my hand. Well, so for you Trekkies, this is the situation. I mean, Jacob goes from sort of being on the sidelines right to the Kirk chair. I mean, he is now in control of this situation. This is the old Jacob. And when I say the old Jacob, I don't mean the, the bad guy. I mean, this is the guy with his moxie. This is the guy that, that, this is the real Jacob. This is what he's capable of. I mean, he goes into gear, and buddy, you don't have to wonder what to do next. He first talks about a gift. Take the man a gift. Well, you know, Jacob was good at that. Remember when he was coming back from Paden Aram, and he was going to have to face Esau, and he had that gift. I mean, it shows his insight into human nature. And it gets me hungry just reading this list here. I mean, pistachio nuts and almonds and... We got some of those almonds from Whitley's, I tell you what now. Anyway, he's got a good list here. Some of the best things of the land. These things were apparently difficult to come by. You wouldn't think that you could impress Joseph, who's the governor of the land, with a gift. But he's, and then, not only this, he starts telling them about get the money. Take the money back. Don't even, don't even think about going without taking the old money and come with the new money as well. But this is, to me, the most impressive. He ends with this blessing that he pronounces. And this is powerful. Look at verse 14. May God Almighty, and stop right there. Because this is El Shaddai. See, this is the name that God particularly emphasized himself to the patriarchs with. Look at this verse in Exodus 6, 3. You have to be sure you understand this correctly, but this is what God says to Moses. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord. I don't know why they didn't have that in all caps. That's weird. Anyway, I did not make myself known to them. Now, we won't stoop to the forum critics that come along and try to say, well, see, this just shows that they didn't know that name. Yes, they most certainly did know Yahweh. Yahweh, God is referring to himself as Yahweh, and, and they are referring to him as Yahweh all through the record in Genesis. That's not what this means. It means that God is ready to explain now the real significance of Yahweh to Moses. And God had not illuminated them about that before, but he most certainly had told them about El Shaddai and what that meant. And if you want to get a for instance of this, turn back to chapter 35, verse 11. Remember in the, these, these points in the life of Jacob when he met with God, Chapter 28 is the first, when he meets God at Bethel. Now, we don't have it in the record here, but we have it in the record now. When he's coming back, he says this about that encounter because he's at the very same place. Verse number 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. And what had God told him at the encounter when he saw the ladder he was running from his brother Esau. His mother said, you better get over there to Laban's place where you, <laughs> you know, your brother's going to knock your head off. And he's fleeing from his brother, and he, God appears to him and assures him, I'm going to bring you back. 
It'll be more than 20 years before that happens, and Joseph or Jacob will go through all kinds of fits and turns. But God can make the impossible happen. God has the power to do that. So when we read this verse, God said to him, I am almighty God, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your body. And he tells him this in the context of having to meet Esau. I'm the same God who told you I was capable of bringing you back. Here you are coming back and I'm the same God who's capable of keeping you safe in this encounter with your brother whom you fear, for whom you have dread. So if you look at the last thought here, what is it that, calm, that causes the calm to return? How is it that Jacob goes from being this self-absorbed individual who can't make a decision, and yet he was plenty known for making decisions? I mean, he made that decision when God appeared to him, and he's over there with Laban, and he said, we're going home. He didn't have any problem with that, but he didn't hear. He just wasn't himself. But how does it come about that it returns? When he surrenders. When he surrenders to the plan, when he surrenders to God, when he surrenders to what he has to do. And I don't want to, I'll just let you take this away. I put it in parenthesis, but you know, it's obvious where the struggle had been in this whole thing. And it was with his children. It was with Benjamin. Now, I don't tell you this lightly because he had lost, he thought, and in some ways he had, Joseph. So I, I don't know that I could have done any better. In fact, I'm not sure I could have done as well. And I'm talking to a lot of veterans in this room of children. And you know what I'm talking about. You ones that aren't there yet, you'll know soon. It becomes awfully difficult sometimes to surrender your children to God. I mean... They are as close and precious to you as anything you have other than perhaps your spouse. And people express love in different ways, but I'll tell you one thing, it's there. Whether you're an expressive person and tell them all the time you love them, or however, you, however your particular makeup is, it's there. And he's struggling, desperately struggling. He's lost, he thinks, Joseph. He's not about to let Benjamin out of his sight, but he has to. And all I can encourage you about here this morning, beloved, is, you know, we have to do the same thing. We have to place even our most precious possessions in the hands of God. If not, no calm. There's always anxiety. There's always dread. If we place them in God's hands, doesn't mean there aren't going to be bumps, doesn't mean there aren't going to be problems, but that means God's, in, God's responsible now. So think about that a little bit because I got to move. Fearful brothers. Again, the word dread fits. You know what? The fear was a problem with these guys from the first moment Egypt came up. Now, why? Because if you look back in 3728, 3728, it says that's where they sold Joseph. So when you get to chapter 42, this tickles me. I, again, I say I, I feel sorry for people that don't find humor in the Bible because I read this. Every time I read this, I smile. Look at 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? You ever use that expression before? What are you guys standing around looking at each other for? It's obvious what we need to do to get down there and buy some grain. But 
that reason they were standing around looking at each other is because it was a dread. They were just not looking to go down there because they knew they sold Joseph there. They didn't know what they might encounter there. And then if you keep looking in the, in the record here and, and see what happens when they do get down there and they meet up with, the word comes up again, verse number 28 in that chapter, 42. He said to his brothers, money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth. At their hearts, at this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? He say, it says dread, not fear. Yeah, but that's the same thing. But when you look a little bit later and look at the final verse, 35, they, when they got home, they emptied their sacks. Every man's bundle of money was in his sacks. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, what does it say? They were a Afraid. When we get into chapter 43, same problem. They've still got this dread. Now they're fearful, and I pointed out to you, verse 18, when you look at this, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they're so afraid, in fact, that they stop at the door. That's why I pointed this out to you. Verse 18 says, So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door. It's kind of like, they're not looking to go in there. Not looking forward to this next encounter with this man. But Reuben told them, The day of reckoning for his blood. And God is tightening the screws on that day of reckoning. So they're fearful at the prospect of dining with him. Finally, this, the... The steward gets them to come in, and there's a little bit of reprieve. This is really interesting to me when you look at this, because when you look at what the steward says to them, it's sort of like he, it's sort of like he knows how to sort of calm those fears. And it says in uh, verse 23, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sacks. Don't worry about it. I, I, know, you, I know about the money. I had it. He doesn't tell them he put it back in their sacks. He just says, I had it. I saw that you brought it. It's good. All's good. So that sort of gives them a little temporary reprieve. Then they come in, and they're, and they're there in Joseph's house, and Joseph comes in. And, and by the way, it says here he brings Simeon out, so I'm sure that brought some relief to them. And then Joseph comes out, and all this anxiety about this meeting with, with, with Joseph, I mean, it, it goes well. In fact, it goes as well as you could expect it to go. He comes out, he's very composed, he's very calm. How's your father doing that you mentioned? Oh, you're serving our father, he's alive and well, he's, he's doing great. And <laughs> you see all of these things and Simeon comes out, I'm sure that, that was a great consolation to them. And then I love the way the chapter ends because look at the last part, not the first part, the last part. So they sit down and they're eating and all this is going on. They've had a good interview with Joseph. He doesn't, you know, throw many landmines. There's no new hand grenades. He doesn't put anybody else in jail. It just seems like everything's cool, you know, everything's good. They've got Simeon. The thing with Joseph is going well. They're in there feasting and they kind of lose themselves in the thing. The last part of verse 34 says, and they drank and were merry with him. And you know what? When they left the next morning, which is to anticipate what we'll see next week, Lord willing, in chapter 44, 
I think those guys, I think those guys were saying, wow, whoo, we dreaded this terrible meeting, and here we're going back. We got Benjamin, we got Simeon, we got the grain, and the governor wasn't nearly as severe and fierce as he was the first time. He didn't say anything more about us being spies or anything like that. But there's one little thing amiss. There's one little thing in here that they can't get away from, and it's something like you and I experience from time to time where we get a, a temporary reprieve that turns out to be a false peace for the simple reason that we really haven't dealt with the issue yet. They haven't dealt with the issue yet. They think they're off the hook. They aren't off the hook, and what is in the back of their mind is they sit down at this table and they're all arranged exactly according to their age. Now how could that happen? Then Joseph's who's over here at a separate table because that's just the custom of the Egyptians when the food comes over from Joseph's table to theirs Benjamin has a portion five times as great. Folks I have one word for this, creepy. This is creepy. It's ominous. It's foreboding. Why do I say that? It, it's because what's going on in the back of their minds is we can't get away from this thing. There, there's no other explanation for this other than God. No one else knows this about us. This governor doesn't know, well, how did he come up with this? And it's like they just can't get away from God. Just like they said, what has God done to us in the last chapter? What's the problem that robs them of the calm that they could have had? They're haunted, and the reason is guilt. Unconfessed sin. He said to his brothers, chapter 42, verse 28, my money has been put back. At this their hearts failed, and they turned to one another, trembling, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Reuben said, Now there's a reckoning for his blood. So lack of surrender will rob us of God's peace, and so will unconfessed sin. I have some verses here for you, probably verses you know well, but the first one really characterizes these brothers. The wicked flee when no one pursues. See, when you have a bad conscience, it's like, you're paranoid. These guys were paranoid. I didn't take the trouble to point this out to you before, but they were afraid to go into his house. And look at what they say in, or what they, yeah, in verse 18. It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make his, us his servants well, that, so far that might have been true, but what in the world would Joseph had need of their donkeys? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, it's just like they are so wrought up over this thing that I think Joseph's going to steal their donkeys, really. But you know, the wonderful thing about it is, and again, I, I have this lesson. It's for God to use as he sees fit. But you know, 
the person who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, Proverbs 20. It's in the same chapter. But the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. David assures us in that great psalm that was written because of the situation with Bathsheba, which he originally would not confess. And that went on for nearly a year until finally that was resolved and finally he made confession and he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's one thing I can tell you this morning. No matter what it is you might be struggling with, if you let God know about it and you make it right with God, he'll take care of it. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. God will never. Some people will do that. Some people won't forgive you. God will always forgive you. But you know, when we keep this stuff, I mean, I don't have time for this, but I, I remember a time I had been in the pastorate for a good several years. You know, when, when you're doing that, you know, you're preaching all the time, and occasionally it would just come up in the back of my mind. You remember this time and that time, two times. You remember this time and that time you weren't truthful with your dad. It's true, I wasn't. And I thought, well, Lord, it's so many years. What's that got to do with anything now? And it, it just kept on and kept on. And one time when he came up to visit, I said, Dad, let's go downstairs. We went downstairs, and I told him about those two times. And I said, I just, I want you to know I wasn't truthful, and I want you to, be, I want you to forgive me. Man, I had a great dad. I mean, he looked at me and he just said, oh, son, you make me feel bad. But he made me feel good. And it felt good just to have that off my chest. That'll take your peace, I'm telling you. But we don't have much time. That's always my dilemma. I've had that dilemma for 40 years. Peaceful Joseph. Joseph is bothered by none of this. I mean, he goes out there, he sees Benjamin, that's cool. He can't help but notice that they bow down twice. It says that in verse 26 and 28. He's totally at ease during the interview. All of that. Why? He doesn't have a problem with a lack of surrender. He's a long time ago surrendered to God's will and God's plan. He doesn't have a problem with integrity. He's maintained his integrity the whole way through. And even now, he's trusting God. He tells them this in chapter 45, and verse 5, look, this is just the down payment on the big statement that comes up in chapter 50, verses 19 through 11. He says here, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me. You know? So now he's free to enjoy the peace and the calm that comes to a person. And I have some verses here for you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water. This is Joseph that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for it le its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought or the famine, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So we've got to quit, but here's your takeaways. A lack of surrender 
and confession. They're two of the most notorious peace killers you'll find anywhere in the Bible. So ask yourself, who would you rather be in the story? Joseph who comes out and who's completely at ease, or Jacob or the brothers? Jeremy, Father, bless us now as we go to our next service and help us again. Bless our pastor as he leads us in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.